Hello and welcome to Third Waves. Third is an intersectional publication celebrating culture, heritage and diversity. And on Third Waves, we will do the same. I am Rona, stylist, creative director and founder of Third. I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician and producer at Third. And I'm Tribe, DJ, radio host and music editor at Third. Happy New Year and welcome back to Third Waves. It's January and many people will be doing dry January or at least some kind of detox after the holiday period. So it felt like a perfect time to talk about a topic that has really taken our interest in this moment, the topic of alcohol. From making bars and events more inclusive by having a broader non-alcoholic menu to less than 1% craft beers to the multitude of damaging effects of alcohol and how the threshold of qualifying as an alcoholic is actually much lower than people would like to think. We will hear from two guests, Lauren McQuiston and James Morris. Lauren is the originator of Instagram account Brutal Recovery, a brutally honest and funny ode to recovering from alcoholism through memes. She's also a Scottish soprano singer living in America. When she's not singing, she is a writer and researcher with interests that include the effects of trauma on the singing voice and substance abuse in the music industry. James is an alcohol addiction and behavioural change specialist. He is a PhD student and his research focuses on understanding the effects of problem framing related to alcohol addiction. He is the director of the Alcohol Academy, a social enterprise set up to promote skills and learning development and has been involved in a number of alcohol policy and advisory groups, including the World Health Organization. Um, so it is January. Are either of you doing Dry January this year, or have you ever done it? Um, I've actually never actually done Dry January, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm not someone who drinks loads, but... Um, Last year, I prob- I realised I'd probably stepped into a pub more times than I ever have in my life. Yes. I probably drunk the most. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah I probably drunk the most than I, than I ever had. So um, maybe this year it was a good time to do it. Do you know, as a DJ, drinking kind of comes hand in hand. Like, hmm. we, we were talking the other day about sometimes in particular moments in history, for example, in South Africa and stuff, the tox system, uh, people get paid in alcohol. And whilst I don't get paid in alcohol, it almost comes as part of the perks. Like, we're going to give you a drink to go with your DJing, um, and that's just part of what Mm. the package is. You realise that kind of adds up and starts to creep up. If you're DJing two, three times a week and you're drinking two, three, four drinks in a night, so I did have a couple of moments this year where I was like, I'm drunk and I didn't intend to be drunk, but it's just happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I'm going to definitely keep an eye on that this year. Do you feel like um, when you're DJing and there are like other DJs for the night, obviously, on the set? Yeah. Um, is it a thing in amongst DJs in January? People are like, oh, actually, I'm not drinking this month or not really? Um. I don't think I've heard many DJs going, I'm, I'm not going to drink this month. Uh, it's interesting because I, I did a 
recent DJ skit where it's called Beats and Liquor. And every time you mess up the mix, you take a shot. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. But it sounds like it, uh, it was it's really... going to get worse, really. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, it was a very good experience. Um, but it, it does make you kind of think about how entwined alcohol is to the nightlife. And as a DJ, that's kind of part of it. Mm, mm. What about um, you, Daniela? Yeah, I, I've i never done Dry January. And I, I think I'm not really into this thing of like giving up something entirely for a period of time thing. I think I don't really like like this kind of categorical way of like doing stuff I just doesn't really mix with me mm. um because I just I think I just would find it too difficult or like that teenage rebellion thing of like oh but now I'd really want I really want it so like I don't do Lent as well obviously like not not because I'm not religious but again just because like I don't know I just don't I don't really get it like when people are like oh I'm not going to do this for this amount of time N- like to like just I just mean that it doesn't really work for me mm. um but I, what I do quite like about these kind of things like Dry January or whatnot is the fact that it does make you... I think it's a really good thing that mm. if people talk about it and think about it because it does make you think, oh, because just like you did just now, you're like, oh, I don't really drink that much. So it's not like I've never really thought about it or like needing to do that kind of like intentional detox from alcohol. But, you know, that people think about it more by having almost like this vocabulary, like the fact that this is like soundbite out there called Dry January. You're like, oh, what's that? I'm going to think about it, etc. And I think it's definitely, definitely a good thing. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, also through looking into things like Dry January, this whole idea of sober curiosity, which is super on the wave at the moment. I oh, found out about that, that for the first time. So basically being sober curious is not drinking. So... When you're actively, I mean, another word I would have used for it is teetotal. But I think when you're sober curious, you're also, um, it's a lifestyle choice for you. Oh, so it's like exploring the idea of how removing alcohol from your life may have, you know, a positive effect. So it's like you're kind of questioning it and yeah, exploring it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, it's like trying to abstain, build your lifestyle around abstaining from alcohol. Mm. Um, and I think one of the kind of interesting thing that I, that I can see the sober curious movement almost doing is like creating spaces um and like like I was just talking about how much this year I've entered a pub like pubs are generally like drinking spaces yeah um and they're like sober curiosity is definitely creating like social spaces mm. where alcohol is like not attached to yeah. what is happening there. Um, so an example of this is that there was like the Clean Vic sort of pop-up pub, mm. which was the first um, non-alcoholic pub that um, I think it was uh, launched at some point. I think it was maybe like over two weeks or something like that. Um, but it was like a non-alcoholic pub social experiment that sort of was put on to almost um provide sober curious people with a place to go and socialize still people seem to really have turned out and it's quite enjoyed do you know like and quite enjoyed it yeah it's, it's i think just it seems to be like a reaction to the fact that so many so many spaces are alcohol fueled yeah so um like pubs are a great example but also nightlife like nightclubs yeah uh usually like drink goes hand in hand with going going out and like enjoying nightlife and stuff like that um yeah so like all these alternatives are coming up i think i even saw like a roller disco that was like also sober curious 
Do you know what? I never <laughs> thought about alcohol and roller Roll disc. That's <laughs> 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 crazy. I saw some crazy things. Exactly. Like you can't drink. <laughs> yeah, I saw some crazy things. So um, it's cool. Did you? Did, who is behind the sober curious movement? Do that's you know? a good question. Is it, um, is it young people? Is it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's interesting about sober curiosity is, is it's really something that has formed as a reaction to the fact that more young people are more health conscious now. So less people are wanting to go out and get lashed. That mm. is just like a, a fact. And so sober curiosity is maybe like, I don't know whether it started via Instagram, mm. but it's definitely become like this positive, uh, non-drinking hashtag that has like made people who also don't want to drink find each other and mm. um, there are loads of people who are like at the forefront to it like instant as you can imagine like influencers and etc um but what i almost quite like about it is that if i reflect back to when i was younger um yet again not really drinking was kind of like a strange thing a hundred percent and like yeah. people would always be like why are you not drinking do you know what i mean yeah. like almost like explain to me why you're not drinking yeah um, and also like peer pressure of like oh it's my birthday why aren't you drinking like yeah. Yeah. Being, like a real killjoy or something yeah. yeah and i think like the sober curiosity movement is a really positive thing about that is that it's like changing that narrative and it's actually just being yeah. like actually we don't want to drink um, like, yeah what i think is quite interesting is also the relationship you have with alcohol can be produced by your influence of your parents for example in my family it was always kind of natural on christmas just to have a little bit of like wine or something like that mm. um as a kid like just i'll oh, try this or a little bit of guinness but it was never kind of created as a a special thing it oh. was never such a big deal so by the time i turned 18 it was never like now i can finally drink it was always like oh yeah that that thing okay that's yeah that's alcohol you know like oh like that's yeah. a banana um so when i went to uni i never felt like that was something i was particularly drawn to mm. to get drunk that sounds like a really healthy approach mm. Mm. yeah i also find it interesting i, I mean i personally cannot stand beer is it? Okay, yeah, fair. I don't really like beer. I've yeah. never finished a can of anything. Whoa. Um, yeah. That could also be down to the fact that, like, maybe the first drink that was sort of, like, offered to me by my family was, like, Guinness by my dad. <laughs> yeah, you know it's I mean? always Guinness, isn't so it? So maybe I was just, like, <laughs> totally uncool. Yeah. Tastes bitter. Nah. Yeah. But, like, obviously, like, sweeter drink, like drinks, like, I love Disserano. Mm, do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and gin and et cetera. So there were all these sort of, like, culinary benefits to alcohol i guess and and that's what i think is also another interesting point um people drinking because they enjoy the taste of alcohol and the cocktails and the mixes and those who drink with the aim of getting slaughtered and completely smashed you know Mm. and whatever can get them to that position fast enough it's there's also a thing about like thresholds mm. and maybe like sometimes you think your limit is somewhere and actually like it's all you've way past it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to go back to something you said earlier about this, um, the, the tot system in South Africa. Is that a historical thing? I, I don't really know what it is. So during the colonial period when Afrikaans uh, people kind of dominated politically, economically over the South African population and put them into certain working positions where they would be paid in alcohol and um, this has continued to influence the uh, townships and the people the South African people in the sense of like it made them more affiliated with 
alcohol instead of money being exchanged for their labor it created a dynamic uh where alcohol becomes something that is highly valued yeah and it also has a side effect as we know of destroying communities yeah so in this period um where the uh, t- people the colored people of South Africa were being paid in alcohol there was a lot of destruction in the mm. community uh, and it wasn't just South Africa you know, you hear stories in, of the aboriginal people in Australia the native americans um yeah so it yeah. it throughout history uh in recent times anyway communities have been paid in alcohol which kind of makes you question the why alcohol became something that was valued and how it, it is something that can be valued. Yeah. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi. 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 So uh, I'm just hearing about you and what you do. And I was just wondering, what is your backstory? And if you're OK to talk about it, why you started Brutal Recovery? Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, I, like many uh Scottish women, people from the UK started drinking very young. It was a very uh, socially accepted thing. It was, I remember like, you know, going to uh, like gigs and shows and there would always be like a little bar of like blue wickets and stuff. And I would be about, you know, 13, 14, you get someone older to buy it for you. And everything that made me nervous about being social and being shy and being a little bit different just disappeared. Mm. So... I learned from an extremely young age that if I was ever uncomfortable, uh, I could drink alcohol and I would feel instantly better. Um, you know, I, I've talked to so many other people that struggle with alcohol and they describe like their first kiss or their first flirtation like happening after their drink. So, you know, in our young developing brains, we uh, equate alcohol with success and social success. So. I did that for a very, very long time. And uh, being in a country with so much drinking culture, I never knew that it wasn't normal. Um, So, and then uh, I went to uni, I went to a school in Glasgow. And, you know, the first thing you get at school is, is Freshers Week. And Freshers Week is what is the most you can drink for the least amount of money? I don't know if England, they have the, the tactical whitey, which is like you make yourself sick before you go out so you can drink more when you're out. Like, that's no, what? <laughs> that's next level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you know, you're like uh, pre-drinking with all of your friends and then you're like, oh, uh, like I have clearly drank too much. One minute, I'm just going to go tactical and then I can like go out with you. So, oh. so like I, I was that girl, you know, and underneath I was still this just really, really, really shy mm. person. And I just desperately wanted people to like me. And I was in this like school situation and everyone just seemed so much cooler than me. Like I'm, fr- I'm from a farm from the southwest of Scotland. So like in my head, I am the least cool person of all time. Um, but when I drank, like, oh, it's like, a, I'm also, I'm a performer and it gave me the thrill of performance. So I could be this, uh, really cool, interesting, funny person. Uh, and then I started to realize, uh, about in my, my later years of uni that my drinking wasn't normal. Um, I you know, had a couple of, you know, hospital visits, like I got my stomach pumped and everything. And no one, ever, you know, there, there was kind of that whole like, oh, you know, spent her money on, you know, you spend your money on shots and take your taxi money on shots and take the ambulance home. Like, oh. <laughs> uh, 
and I was like yeah of course like I you know can drink more than anyone else that means I'm a legend so I've got a friend uh, who says I thought I was a legend but it turns out it was just a liability mm. um and that is that is what I drove myself into so were people found... encouraging you um like the people you were <laughs> drinking with and just the general kind of social kind of surroundings that you were in aha uh-huh. It, it just very much is the, 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 the drinking culture of young people in the UK. Uh, uh, so, like, as I, uh, you know, it, it stopped becoming fun and people started to worry about me. Um, I was very high-functioning. Like, I would always make class the next day. I'd always pass my exams, never missed a rent check. Uh, that, you know, that level of high-functioning with a hangover is an indication that you have a problem with drinking, that you can pull it together so hard the next day so that you can maintain your level of drinking. Uh, and, and someone pointed that out to me. And, you know, I, I felt attacked. I, fe- I felt just like, how dare you? Like, look in the mirror. Like, when you're pointing, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Like, and I would then, that's when I started to control everyone else's drinking. I wanted everyone else to be drinking more than I was. Uh, so I turned the enabling on other people so that I could kind of hide my own drinking and I'd be, uh, I would ha- always have like, you know, the, the drinking that I do with people and I would always have like my little secret stash in my purse just in case I never had enough to reach like the complete oblivion I was looking for. Um, my, my story gets a little bit more intense when I go to America. I live in America now, uh, hence I'm sadly not in the studio with you today. Um, but with, uh, you know, alcoholics, we have the term geographical, where you, like, change your, change your surroundings completely to escape your drinking. Mm. You think that changing the, the circumstances you're in will fix everything. Uh, and I kind of, you know, I went to America for school, but I also kind of thought that, oh, because when I move, like, everything will be okay. And I'll stop needing to, like, drink myself to oblivion every night. And I'll stop needing, I'll, I'll stop feeling shy. Like, people will like me instantly and I won't have to worry about anything. Um, that is never the case. <laughs> that mm. never happens. Uh so I like to say that when I got to America, I went into berserker mode. Like, it just got so much worse. It, it compounded on itself. The the new stresses of this new life uh, made me just seek that oblivion even more. Like, I was foreign, so people uh, were, you know, quite intrigued by that. And I could easily say, like, oh, I'm, from, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm from Scotland. Like, this is just what we all do. Um and no, no one questioned it. Uh, again, like, I've got myself into that situation where I made made my drinking a a fun little character trait as opposed to something that was you know born of trauma and discomfort that I was using to hide um so I eventually you know it eventually caught up with me um I woke up one morning and I couldn't breathe like I felt like I couldn't get a full inhalation so I went to the doctors and I said like oh I think I have asthma like can you test me for asthma um and they were like sorry mate like there's there's nothing wrong with your breathing and I was like well I I can't breathe like I'm shaking I'm I'm trembling like I I don't know what's wrong with me um and that's when they told me that I was experiencing withdrawal and I I I couldn't believe them like uh again I used to then like oh I don't have a problem with alcohol like from Scotland like it's 50% of my blood like that's just (laughs) how I am uh (laughs) And saying and believing that probably means you have a problem with alcohol. Um, so 
uh, and then I, I went to an addiction specialist uh, at my new school and she, you know, confirmed what they were saying and uh, she made me uh, sample abstinence and after sampling abstinence, uh, she was like, just give it a month, like try a month where you don't drink, like it's going to be hard, but like I think that you're going to notice a difference and I kind of was like, ha, like sure lady, like I can't wait to prove you wrong that, you know, I can keep going as I'm going. Um, and sure enough, like when I realized uh, how much of my life was completely dictated by getting my first drink and staying on that level for the whole day. Um, yeah, and then uh, I got to about a year sober. That wasn't a year, it was about nine months sober. And I was sick of it. It was Christmas and I was just like, oh, I hate this. Like everyone's out there having a really nice time. And here's me like with my little, you know, sparkly water, like resentful and just, I, I was like, how does everyone else get to enjoy this and not me? Like poor me. Um, so I went onto Instagram and for the first time in my life, sobriety Instagram pages came up on my Explorer. This has never happened to me before. Um, and the first ones I saw were all pages that were women doing yoga on a beach, talking about how grateful they were to be sober. And I was like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. feels sick. Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, and then there was also uh, humorous pages making jokes about what they were like in active addiction. And I was like, oh, that, but also not because... I do have space for gratitude in my life and I do have space for love in my life. So I was like, I want to find a space in the middle here. Mm -hmm. I want to find a space where I can be extremely grateful and love my sobriety. And I also want to have uh, irreverent humor and sarcasm. Like I, I want to incorporate those parts of my character into this. Uh, and then I was like, well, if I can't find it, I'm just going to do it. So... <laughs> So long story short, that's why uh, that's why I started the page because I wanted to find that middle ground in sobriety where you can be extremely grateful but also a little bit flippant and sarcastic. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much for sharing your story yeah. with us. Um, oh, my pleasure. I think a lot of people can connect to aspects of it or even you know the whole story as well. Um, going back to starting brutal brutal recovery, I love the page, and I I mean I'm not someone who is in recovery, but I can relate to the sort of like caustic humor, the mm. self-depreciating nature of it. And I think it's amazing how, like if I compare it to other sort of accounts I've seen, which are like uh, sober conscious and et cetera, this one definitely seems to push the female experience more. Right. Um, I mean, you've got things on there talking about like periods, um, dating, do you know what I mean? Right. Um, there's one I have in front of me and it's a picture of Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And Lady Gaga, it says like, me nine gins in feeling validated because a man told me I could handle my drink. And then um, Bradley Cooper's like, some predator that's watched me get fucked up since I was in this bar since I was underage. I mean, I can certainly like relate at least to that. Do you mm. know what I mean? Or having seen that. Um, yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about like bringing in the female experience into into through your means. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I really wanted to be sure that from the get go, I was uh, incorporating the female experience because when I was looking throughout like the, the you know the the meme pages that existed, a lot of the humor was at the expense of women. I'm not saying these aren't issues men face as well. Uh, I'm just you know sharing my experience as as a woman uh, and that it's more prevalent. Uh, 
numbers wise in women. So um, there's certain things that, that women experience in higher numbers, such as uh, childhood sexual trauma, uh, date rape, uh, eating disorders, um, and the uh, the idea that we have to keep up with this male society. So I know so many women that want to drink on the same level as men because in the past, you know, however many years, socially women have been trying to be the equals of men. So that that does, like, you know, uh, reflect in our drinking. There's so many aspects of, like, the, the machismo... Uh, culture that hurts both men and women. Uh, you know, I, I tried a careful line here, but my experience from being a drinker and from research is that when a man has a drink in his hand, he is a lot safer than a woman with a drink in her hand. Mm. Um, alcohol is the number one date rape drug, and it's a huge risk factor for women, especially young women. People that uh, have a problem with drinking, the comorbidity with trauma is 100%. And a lot of the, the trauma that women face that we can't talk about is reflected in my drinking, for sure. So I want women to know that, you know, they're seen and we have this, like, firmly uh, stitched together lattice of very female-specific trauma Um and I, I, I just really, really want it to be visible. And I really want people to know that that really ugly thing about you that you feel is ugly and like unspeakable that comes out when you've got a vodka Coke in your hands. Like, I feel that too. And, and it's okay. And like, we can talk about that. Um, and as well, like the the period stuff, uh, I, I, t <laughs> I talk about that all the time. Uh, I've spent I've spent my whole life uh, with uh, PMDD, like really and, and really really bad PMS, and I, I've become an unrecognizable person around that time. <laughs> and you know, when you're working a, a process of recovery where you're trying to be, you know, the same level-headed, uh, happy, joyous, free person, and you have this monthly event that turns you into an unrecognizable person like I I'm going to talk about that <laughs> that's that something for people who menstruate and uh, I I've never I've not seen a single platform where that's been talked about so I'm going to be that person <laughs> that's nice. yeah, amazing and what has your response been um to your posts on uh, brutal recovery how have people re reacted to it in general I think my my favorite response that is very frequent um, is people my age, uh, young women my age saying, you know, I didn't think that I could be in recovery before I found your account. They were like, in every recovery space, I never saw someone that looked like me or uh, identified with my experience. Or, you know, we, we see alcoholism as, and, and problems with alcohol as this uh, older man thing. And uh, when you're a young woman, it's a fun, happy thing. Like it's uh, um, it's something that we we get alcohol marketed to us in this very feminine, sexy way. So if you're drinking again on on the level of men, uh, and you're drinking for this be to be accepted, it's 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 okay because you've not met that bar of what people consider for someone to have a problem with alcohol so my favorite response is when i say like uh, hi i'm lauren i'm 26 uh i'm just graduated out of school and i cannot drink like a normal person so for 
I, I needed that person when I was younger. Like when I was in uni and I was like crying by myself in Mahosa residence, like shot in whiskey. I needed that person that was like, by the way, like you also can have a problem with alcohol. Like this isn't normal. Um, so that's probably my favorite response. Um, and you know, a lot, a lot of people, the, the message me with their, uh, with their achievements, you know, people will be like, Oh, I got like 15 days sober. I haven't got that since I was 13. And I saw like, uh, you know, people like myself were seeing these very grateful, graceful women saying the best things about their sobriety. And I, I wanted to be that person that's saying, yeah, my sobriety is the favorite thing in my life, but also here's how it sucks. And it sucked so hard. And here's what I did yeah. that, that made it feel better. Yeah. And it's just that full rounded experience that I want to portray. So when people say to me, like, I needed to see that for me to get to this point in my recovery, just makes it all worthwhile, like really, really, really worthwhile. So, you know, I, I say like my first line in my bio is brutally honest recovery. Like it, it just, it just comes straight from a place of uh, transparency. Uh, and it makes me think of how much I was covering up when I was drinking and like I was getting lost in my lies and then have to keep up with the lies and the lies that I was putting on top of the other lies, like just stripping all of that back and being, you know, so honest has been, it's just been so amazing. Um, th there is another question that I really want to ask you about because you're an um, uh, amazing opera singer and there's this thing about uh, performance obviously plays a big part in medicative behaviour. Um, I think people outside of the music industry, especially outside of the classical music industry, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily expect that people are potentially drinking before performances or taking beta blockers <clears throat> to deal with their anxiety. And so I'd yeah. love to hear you speak a little bit about how that sort of a basically work environment has encouraged or been unhelpful uh, to to your story. Yeah, um, there's there's this idea that alcohol is in just intrinsically linked with the ideas of celebration and sophistication and uh, high achievement. And I found very early on in an opera career that, you know, when you go to one of these uh, events, the first thing you get is a glass of champagne put in your hand. And uh, I, I, that really reiterated to me that like, oh, to be in this industry, I need to drink. Like we're, we're always told that if you're not networking, like what are you doing? Like, where do you network? You network at the bar, you network at these events where it's just very, very alcohol fueled. And yeah. we view music and opera as this luxury product. And the other luxury product we have in society is alcohol. So they've, they've always gone hand in hand on, on the industry level um, and on the personal level, uh, opera singers and musicians in general, uh, we have always been given this idea that to be successful at what we do we need to be at the very least a teeny tiny bit tormented we need this level of mm. pain inside us that drives us to be these wild creatives that we are and I used to believe that to be the wild creative that I was, I needed to be drunk. I needed uh, that when I was drinking, it unleashed the side of myself that I was scared to show the world. And that was hand in hand with my performance. Um, and the the things that people would uh, you know compliment me for, like being being brave and being wild and you know coloring outside the lines. I was like, well, I can't have that unless I'm drinking. Um, and then, you know, we, we put alcohol in with celebration and uh, commiseration. So if something goes well, like, hey, pub, if it goes badly, like, oh, let's like have a few. Yeah. Um, 
and it, it just fed itself. It just really uh, compounded on itself. And that's uh, the more people I speak to in the industry, like I never spoke about this before I got sober. And now like when I'm at these events and I'm like, you know, with my fizzy water and people people will ask questions, they'll be scandalized that I'm not drinking at these events. Uh, and, you know, I won't go like, oh, I'm an alcoholic and I'm so shy and like blah, blah, blah. Like I'll just say like, oh, you know, it didn't mix well with me. And people then people will like lean in and say like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm really struggling. Like, mm. why do you have to drink to be in this career? Like, and that, that's happened so much. Like, I'm, they're, they're not necessarily alcoholics, but you don't have to be an addict or an alcoholic to have a problem with drinking. Mm. A question about environment. Have you found that the culture in the UK is more extreme or less extreme in comparison to, to the US and have you seen any changes in for example you're talking about how you've kind of disclosed in certain spaces oh yeah I, I don't drink alcohol have you seen over time maybe people's responses being a bit different in terms of maybe more friendlier more accepting more understanding of it yeah like uh that that's such a great question so the the main thing that uh I've noticed is uh the the difference in age of drinking is, uh, you know, we can drink when we're 18 in America, they wait till they're 21. So for someone in America to be underage drinking at a very, very young age, mm. that's a very, very extreme thing. So all of the extreme stories that I've heard over here that, you know, they're, they're ashamed to say and they're ashamed to say, uh, they started drinking at the same time I was drinking when it was acceptable. Um, our underage drinking is different from their underage mm. drinking. Mm. Um that that's probably the so like but that means that when people get to college when when they're like you know in their in their 18, their uh, late teens early 20s they're exposed to this world they've never been exposed for and on top of college stress like they just go absolutely wild so that was kind of the main difference uh i think that the the weirdest thing about being a scottish person in america is as soon as I open my mouth and they hear my accent. The first thing they assume is that I'm a drinker. They will, That's they will say, yeah, yeah. It's it's so the in, most interesting thing about being a sober Scottish woman is, for me to be sober, people think I've like kind of given up a part of my identity as as a Scottish woman and like. <laughs> I mean, there, there is so much more to Scotland. Like, yeah. whiskey is a beautiful part of Scotland. Love that, but like, um, you know, it's like we, we invented pen, like penicillin and stuff. And I'm not going to go around and say like, well, actually, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> let me educate you. It's so funny that like to be Scottish, I have to be a drinker. Um, so seeing that in another country really illuminated me as to uh, how we view drinking in Scotland. And mm. I'm, I am, you know, uh, I'm seeing more more of my friends in Scotland uh, be sober, like for, for their health and they're, they're facing similar things, but it's becoming largely more accepted from, from my perspective. Mm. Um, Lauren, one thing I really love about brutal recovery is that on the Instagram through the memes, you definitely show recovery is not this like simple, straightforward, journey that you go through um you show the highs and the lows you know what I mean the struggles um if you were to give advice to any person really or young girl struggling or you know attempting to begin their recovery or on the journey of their recovery what would it be oh that's such a good question so um 
So I, I think uh, being fem uh, female specific point I would make is uh, women are more likely to quit something if they don't get it perfect. Mm. So we we are chasing perfection in everything we do. Um, so that's why I you know I, I portray myself as a very imperfect person. Um, so I, I would say to to that women, uh, you know, you do not have to be perfect. Uh, if you set yourself a sobriety goal or a recovery goal and you don't immediately achieve that on your timeline, please do not give up. It is not a permanent stain against your name. Like I relapsed at least 10 times before I achieved, uh, you know, 10 months. And uh, it would be really easy for me to say, well, you know, I'm just going to relapse again. But like all that told me is that I just found so many ways that didn't work for me before I found a way that worked for me. So I would say that persistence is key. Um, I would also say community, like even if you have one person that you identify with that is also on a similar journey of recovery, have that person, find that person. Like it doesn't matter if their recovery journey looks exactly like yours or nothing like yours. If you have that thing in common that you want to free yourself of, uh, you know, your 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 the grasp of alcohol, then you you'll always have each other. And I'm I'm so lucky that I have people that I really identify with around me. That if I'm ever in that moment of, uh, you know severe anxiety or I've got a case of the fuck it's like I can call that person and say like I, I'm I'm struggling and it's so okay to say you're struggling um and I, you know I'd also say that it gets really hard like your first month is like you're walking without skin but it grows back mm -hmm. and the what you rebuild is just so worth it Thank you, James, for being here with us sure. today. Um, just to start off, could you tell us a bit about your backstory, mm. um, the work you do and how you got into it? Sure. Um, so I first got into the kind of alcohol agenda through uh, working through a local authority uh, in about 2004, which I, I graduated from university and went and kind of blagged myself into this job that was about reducing alcohol problems at a kind of local authority level. Um, but I think the kind of reason I was partly able to uh, sort of talk my way into that was that I went through a experience at university of going there, being a pretty heavy drinker and taking that to the to the level that I was really able to in the sense of that kind of environment really allowed for binge drinking. And um, certainly at that time, kind of 2000, that's what we call kind of peak alcohol in terms of national consumption had really hit a high point after rising for, for many decades. And that was a kind of period of uh, binge culture and alka pops and so on. Uh, and I really embraced that, but it did come with consequences. So for my health, and I did a lot of stupid things. Um, I won't go into too many details. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so I went through this period of kind of trying to figure out why was I kind of self-destructing in, in this way. Um, and in my second year, I kind of stopped drinking and that really radically changed my experience of being at university and a lot of uh, friends or people I thought of as friends kind of just didn't want to know me anymore mm. because I they saw me as being this kind of first and last at the bar person to suddenly someone going, well, I'm not drinking at all. Um, so I got really interested in it from, from that side and then ended up um, 
working in uh, the kind of field in different forms for, for kind of since then, really. So interesting. Um, and so you are a PhD student at the moment. That's um, right. Yeah. Love to hear a bit about what your sure. research focus is. Yeah, so, um, so one of the things that I did uh, quite a lot of um, kind of working subsequently was around training healthcare professionals uh, to deliver what's generally known as brief interventions. So these are like a conversation where a healthcare professional might identify with someone, identify someone who's drinking a bit too much uh, and they would then identify that and kind of point out that this is a bit of a risky level of consumption. Maybe you might want to think about cutting down and how would you go about doing that? And there's good evidence that that, that kind of short approach can have quite lasting benefits in terms of behaviour change if it's kind of done in the right way, mm. you know, not a judgmental <laughs> yeah. telling off. You've got a problem. Way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that can be counterproductive. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of the skills um, that I was kind of teaching or training these healthcare practitioners isn't was was trying not to be too directive or judgy or anything like that whereas just trying to get someone to think about actually um you know there's pros and cons to drinking as we'll, we'll probably discuss later so that can work but what i really found interesting was that uh throughout um kind of training thousands of professionals the thing that that really seemed to come up time and time again was that people were very preoccupied with the idea of an alcoholic. Mm. So I'd often say, well, you know, there's lots of people that are going to work, they've got jobs, they're functioning, um, but their drinking is harming their health or putting their health at risk or their well-being or their functioning. Those are the really uh, golden opportunities just to have a quick conversation and maybe nip something in the bud or you know, get someone to kind of bring some health benefits to their life um, just by making some small changes. Um, but it's quite hard to sell that because people would just keep going back. But I've, I've got this uh, kind of patient or this person that comes in every week and he's, you know, severely dependent, he's an alcoholic, what do I do about him? And, you know, that's a really important question and a really important group of people that we don't want to forget about. But at the same time, for every one person with severe alcohol dependency, there's, you know... Offer, you know, depends how you cut the cake, but dozens of people with mm. risky levels of alcohol use. So, from a public health point of view, we really want to do better at prevention and early mm. intervention. But it's very hard to get people to kind of take the focus off and see it a bit more broad brush approach. So, um, yeah, to get to the point of the question, <laughs> my PhD was really about how do people's uh, beliefs about what alcohol problems are affect the way that we kind of think about and talk about and see see these things so particularly this idea of alcoholism as a kind of disease that you have to hit rock bottom and recover from which kind of works for a lot of people but um, yeah the, in reality it kind of creates a false divide between how many people see it as two two groups of yeah. drinkers alcoholics and everyone else mm. and this kind of false separation that's the kind of dominant model for alcohol problems in many people's minds um, for good reason because that's the kind of narrative that's pervaded yeah. for a long time how can we kind of break that down a bit and what are the kind of pros and cons of doing that yeah I really love the fact that you give this really balanced approach to dealing with alcohol problems mm. or alcohol misuse um, and I know it's one of the words that you talk about a lot is harm and I think mm. sometimes you don't actually understand what harm, what the harm is. Do you know what I mean? So it'd be great to get you to unpack like the different levels sure. from like, you know, socially, I imagine there's harm from alcohol mm. as well as physically. Absolutely. And yeah, there's a number of challenges around that. I mean, uh, 
what what we talk a lot about in public health as well as risk. So, um, you, you know, say say drinking alcohol, um, unfortunately, at any level carries uh, a risk of cancer or at least seven types of cancer. Um, so particularly things that alcohol con comes into contact with, you know, throat and mouth and, and liver. Um, for women, breast cancer is, is, is significantly raised the more you drink. The, the kind of difficulty around it is that if you're drinking at very low levels of alcohol, that increased risk of cancer is very, very small. That you know, um, that that only it would only result in one increased case of cancer per. I can't remember the exact stat, but it's something like a few thousand people by drinking at low levels of alcohol. But obviously, the more you go up, the more that that risk goes, and that's true for almost every kind of alcohol-related harm. So. I think the difficulty is often that people will think or feel that if they can't, if they're not experiencing or aware of any actual physical embodied effects of negative effects of alcohol yet, then, you know, why you don't need to worry about it. Um, but then things like liver, liver disease or liver problems are really interesting because uh, liver is obviously the, the organ that takes the most punishment or has to work the hardest to kind of deal with alcohol. Um, but it's not until kind of end stage uh, liver damage to signs become really noticeable. So you could have early or mid stage liver scarring or liver cirrhosis and not be aware of it at all. You wouldn't have any pain or anything. Um, so unless you've got a kind of really quite sophisticated liver fiber scan, you wouldn't know. Um, so yeah, that's the challenge that a lot of people have harms or negative effects which could be much less life-threatening, but like poor sleep's probably one of the biggest under-recognised things. So alcohol kind of doesn't mm. allow people to get deep restorative sleep. Uh, so a lot of these things are not noticed or not connected to drinking. Uh, and that kind of allows people to, again, kind of separate, oh, you know, well, I like, I'm happy with how much I'm drinking and there's no cost to that when being a bit more scientific about it, there probably are some costs, even if it's just increased risk. Mm. And... Another side to the harm uh, topic is I feel like when we when when I think about uh, alcohol harm, I'm thinking about my body. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, physical yeah. things or perhaps, you know, I have an argument. So that was kind of the social aspect that that uh, Rona was kind of starting to bring up. But also, I think uh, the effects on people's uh, work, mm. um, I think that's something that people don't talk about as much that how how many people perhaps drink while they're working and or like the effect of a bad hangover on yeah. the not not only efficiencies but you know people working with big machines or yeah, you know have other people's lives in their hands essentially um i, I wondered if you could maybe talk on sure. that sure um i mean there there's been a cause to do some kind of more updated economic modeling of the the kind of costs of our alcohol on the nation but um in around 2004 there was an economic impact assessment done by the government and it put the cost of alcohol on productivity at around 7 billion. And that's kind of twice what the, t the estimate at the time was on the NHS. So about three and a half billion costs to the NHS each year from from uh, from alcohol. Uh, but yeah, twice that in terms of just so many lost working days. Wow. Or a lot mm -hmm. of people talk about presenteeism as well, you know, like being at work, but being hungover and not really <laughs> not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... 
um, yeah, lost working days through long-term illness and health problems, hangovers, mm. sick days, uh, all, all the all that kind of stuff. It, you know, from an economic point of view, it's definitely big. Yeah. Um, going back to your your personal story a little, I I found it interesting. Um, you were talking about your sobriety going from um, drinking uh, a lot to not drinking yeah. at all, and and it's an interesting topic. Um, regarding moderation versus teetotalism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, for the record, I'm not actually, I don't identify, well, I'm not a, a, a kind of abstinent anymore. So, um, yeah, I love, I'm fascinated by the kind of, um, the way, again, which people kind of have these ideas, which often tied to the kind of disease model or alcoholism model about abstinence being the route to recovery or even recovery as a word, because, yeah, my personal experience was that I didn't drink for about eight years after um, <clears throat> after that kind of experience. But but during that period, you know, I kind of changed quite a lot. Um, you know, I was a very different place eight years later and I was pretty convinced that, you know, I could actually drink moderately if that was something I wanted to do. And I contemplated it quite a lot and I was actually quite worried about some of those kind of... Um, you know maybe stereotypes or ideas about oh it's a slippery slope and you know um you know there's an old alcoholics anonymous saying like one drink one drunk the idea of controlled drinking or uh, moderation or however you want to call it has been has a really fascinating and controversial history um and in large part of that of that is because of the dominance of the kind of aa model which obviously says that if you're an alcoholic you can never drink again um, and that's certainly true that for a lot of dependent drinkers abstinence is absolutely your best bet that's the safest option and a lot of people um, and certainly this was my experience kind of before I stopped drinking I did try and moderate and fail is that with you know with abstinence you know exactly where the line is it's yeah. zero yeah Whereas when you start trying to control it, it's like, whoa, how much is this? <laughs> and so on. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I've been drinking now for, all, for for longer actually than I was not drinking in moderation. I think the really crucial thing was that um, there's a number of predictors around likelihood of succeeding at, at, at moderation or controlled drinking, whatever you want to call it. Um, one is having a period of abstinence is really good for you in terms of, I mean, there's... It's very complicated, but maybe there is a bit of the kind of brain learning to reset itself a bit, to sort of speak metaphorically. Um, but mainly for me, it was about kind of figuring out what was going on in my life. Why were, why did I have all this kind of stuff in my head that really made me want to drink quite destructively mm. and kind of dealing with some of that stuff? I just felt like it was in a totally different place and I, I just no longer have that desire to kind of self-destruct and drink heavily that I used to have. So now I'll have a social drink or two or a glass of wine with a meal, and I'm very conscious that that's the place that alcohol plays in my life, and that if I'm in a stressful period or feeling, you know, very tense or whatever, I'm not really going to drink because I don't want it to become that thing that it was before, where it was a kind of crux or mechanism for letting go of negative stuff. So it does work for some people, albeit that people have had severe alcohol dependency um, yeah, that's less likely to be an appropriate or, or possible kind of outcome. Yeah, I think, James, what you're almost exploring is the, the whole concept of addiction, isn't it? Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think when it comes to alcohol, obviously, maybe you can talk to us about elements of alcohol that are actually mm. biologically quite addictive. But I think a lot sometimes the things we, we choose to do um, when they can connect to our actual lives... Mm. Um, that's another reason for the addiction. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's again, I, I love these debates about what addiction is and, you know, still they're very quite fiercely fought. You know, you've got kind of very medical or biological perspectives and you've got very psychological perspectives and very so social perspectives or social cultural. Um, a lot of people kind of say, well, it's a biopsychosocial thing in which in which means basically that there is a kind of genetic biological element, there is a social element and there is a psychological element um, and they all kind of combine individually for different people in different ways. Um, so... Yeah, there is. There are certain genes that have been identified to make people more uh, at risk of developing addictions or having certain problems. Um, but the biggest predictor really is actually uh, adverse childhood experiences. So uh, people that have had traumatic or more or higher degrees or higher numbers of traumatic experiences throughout their childhood. That is very predictive of uh, later life mental health and drug or alcohol problems um, as well as early onset drinking so the adolescent brain is kind of primed for learning it's sort of kind of super plastic in its childhood and adolescent phases so if you expose it to substances uh, or addictive behaviors during that period that kind of almost sets it up to be more kind of primed for, for those addictive behaviors in later life um, but, you know, kind of as a psycholo psychologist from my PhD point of view, you know, I certainly think that the, the kind of roles of our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviours are really important. Um, and most people say, you know, they like drinking, it makes them feel better. Mm. And that's absolutely right. It does, you know, for most people kind of release dopamine in a way that's positive or pleasurable you know it's a social lubricant um, but then at the same time repeating those behaviors does cause um, kind of pathways in the brain to become reinforced so that it does become a kind of more subconscious go-to mechanism yeah um, so you know there's there's a guy called Mark Lewis who's a neuroscientist and and kind of identifies as a former heroin addict who has written some brilliant stuff but he's kind of says that um you know it's this kind of a form of dysfunctional learning in the sense that um you know if you learn to drive a car at the start you're very conscious of what you have to do um, but over time you just learn to do it subconsciously so that you can kind of drive without even thinking about it and addiction's a bit like that in the sense that the more you do it the more it just becomes a kind of subconscious thing that you kind of fall into doing without kind of uh, thinking about it consciously and then obviously people have maybe a kind of moment or an awakening where they think oh god you know this is an addiction and I actually need to do something about it and they might begin the process of trying to kind of unlearn or yeah kind of forge new pathways in the brain that kind of kind of hopefully kind of replace that kind of automatic addictive process but of course all that happens in a very complex environment of your social networks your your kind of life and where you're at with that and uh, all those other kind of almost infinite multiple factors mm. I, th I thought what you said there I guess is kind of where this uh, metaphor of the slippery slope comes from mm. um, but in as much as that can be um, an unhelpful metaphor in some cases I, I find the idea of uh, addiction and addictive behavior being on a spectrum very interesting and also the the idea of identifying as somebody who has a problem mm. be also being on a spectrum very very interesting absolutely i think that's that's the the alternative to the kind of dominant brain disease binary model that we kind of want is that 
you know, even if the brain and and genetics and so on play a role, which which they certainly do, it's still not a kind of you're either a hundred percent addicted and that's because of your genes or nothing. It's certainly not the case. And and I think this way of a kind of continuum or a spectrum is the kind of I don't want to say antidote because I don't want to replace that because that model does exist and will exist for people who identify with that and it works for but yeah just talking about the kind of broader population so you know I myself I think I probably am a bit addicted to my phone and um, you know I certainly have certain tendencies where I find they're a bit automatic where I think I'd like Mm. to reflect on them a bit more before I just pick up my phone or uh, I don't know you know turn on the telly or whatever um so yeah i definitely think again that's a part of a problem of addiction is that it's generally seen as a binary all or nothing thing whereas in fact these kind of concepts are, should be viewed as or could be viewed as much more fluid i think the same with mental health you know mm-hmm. we've all got mental health we all need to look after it and we all sometimes feel a bit up and a bit down and that's always kind of uh fluid and kind of dependent on a whole range of things going on in our lives mm-hmm. So how difficult is it to get the support people need to quit? Do medical professions have to reform the way they think about alcohol too? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because, um, I mean, the, the the first thing I'd say about the question, though, is that, of course, the the assumption in, bin, in built in it is kind of tied to this disease model idea that people have a severe problem and have to get help. The really fascinating thing is if you actually look at addiction more broadly, most people actually recover without any formal help. And that's what Mm -hmm. we might call kind of natural recovery or self-change. So, uh, again, particularly when you look at people with less severe alcohol problems or addictions, that actually they just go through this kind of more self-reliant process of, well, actually, I want to change that a bit and figuring out how they're going to do that. But but certainly, say, if someone does have a severe addiction and physical dependency, then you need a kind of medical detox if you're, if you're going to go down that route. Otherwise, it can be extremely dangerous because your body can be so dependent on alcohol that suddenly taking it away can cause fits and seizures, mm. which could actually be fatal in the case of, of alcohol. Um, unfortunately, over the last 10 years, really, we've seen um, kind of a lot of cuts to statutory addiction services under austerity, um, you know, roughly kind of 30% cuts to the budget's fa- uh, funding uh, drug and alcohol services um, so we've seen the numbers of people getting kind of uh, official help falling uh, quite significantly um, that said you know uh, you know it's not just about funding I do think that the question's right in the sense that we need to kind of change the overall uh, kind of paradigm that uh, you know that actually m- most people who do recover it's it's kind of services or support are helping them to do it themselves Mm. Um, so we do want to just encourage a bit more thinking about how we can help people to help themselves as well as them being reliant on a very kind of medical model of kind of treatment um, as as it kind of does exist so so I want those services to 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 exist and be better funded but I also want them to think more broadly about how they can reach people at different stages in the kind of addiction trajectory rather than just kind of tending to wait until people's problems are so severe that they end up yeah. saying I've got no choice but yeah. to go to this service yeah. there is a lot more we can do to help people at an earlier stage and in that prevention goes back, yeah and that goes back to that continuum or spectrum thinking Mm. that until we get that thought process more embedded 
a kind of broader level, then it will probably continue to be the case that people will kind of feel like they need to hit a rock bottom yeah, before they yeah. go and get mm. help. It's kind of like we need to change the threshold of what we consider extreme or consider alcoholism. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, I think so because, uh, as I said, you know, there's degrees of risk, there's degrees of harm and there's degrees of addiction. Um and yet, yeah, for most people, they kind of tend to think, or, or a lot of people, you might hear something like, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so yeah. I don't need to do anything about my drinking. Whereas, you know, just based on the evidence, there's a lot of people that are experiencing risks and harms. But they're very aware of the stigma of, you know, alcohol, having an alcohol problem is highly stigmatised. Uh, you know, on some measures more so than mental health problems or even drug addiction. Um, so we've got to do a lot to try and break down the stigma as well so that people, I think a lot of people realise on some level that their drinking is kind of harmful, but mm. to come out and say my drinking's a problem takes quite a kind of strong sense of self and a bit of resilience to be able to take on that stigma that that label mm. comes mm. comes with. Definitely. Um, you were saying briefly, like from your research, that there seemed to have been like a gradual progression that peaked around 2000 in terms of alcohol consumption in the UK. Um, did you, from your research, did you see the kind of things that kind of contributed to it or how that we got to that point? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, from about the 50s and 60s, uh, we can see, uh, you know, like consumption generally is recorded or fairly accurately um, estimated by kind of volume uh, sales of alcohol so the alcohol receipts obviously when they do national surveys people underestimate what they drink by quite a lot yeah. which is quite telling <laughs> no themselves you know, by about 40 percent roughly but but those consumption estimates have been quite a reliable measure over time particularly when you take into account the kind of sales receipts and yeah from the 50s and 60s we saw this kind of gradual increase until it kind of peaked in 2004 um but a lot of that was um, increasing kind of disposable income, mm. uh, so as well as kind of falling relative price uh, of alcohol. So there's a kind of graph that shows uh, affordability of alcohol. Uh, as that goes up, consumption goes up. So uh, you know, on a kind of on a grand level, it's kind of basic economics that that goods are price sensitive uh, and obviously we've seen tobacco or smoking rates have really come down and a lot of that is to do with the way that the prices have just been jacked up so much through tax um, so price is a really big determinant but so is availability so we had this kind of liberalization of availability whereby now any supermarket you know flooded with alcohol stacks of it everywhere on every end of every aisle and as soon as you go in uh, and kind of tied to that, the kind of whole marketing uh, agenda around it. So the alcohol industry obviously spends huge amounts on advertising alcohol and because they know that it does work, um, although they've got some quite clever arguments to say that it's just about, you know, getting people to choose our brand rather than the others and so on. Um, so, yeah, price, availability and advertising or marketing, these are the three things that on a kind of population, national level, really are big determinants in terms of shaping overall consumption. Hello. Hi. Nice Good to meet you. you. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Both you, Lauren, and James have talked about high-functioning sort of alcohol uh, addiction um, or dealing with alcoholism, but yet being super high-functioning. And... I just wondered if you guys could talk about like 
um, maybe representations around alcoholisms and this whole concept of being an alcoholic via like your rock bottom. Um, because I think one of the barriers that stops people from getting help is because they feel they're fine. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, sorry, just to is jump in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you're absolutely spot on with that because there's, you know, a lot of the literature will really say when they interview people who are heavy drinkers who say they kind of don't have a problem, will very often the first justification they will have was, well, I'm still meeting my responsibilities, I'm still going to work, I'm looking after my family, that, that you know, that is kind of the ultimate get-out clause for many people as they see it for justifying their drinking, that they kind of haven't hit a rock bottom or, you know, they're still functioning, even though when they may be drinking huge amounts, that means they're inevitably having negative health consequences or it's very likely that it is affecting their performance or sleep or functioning, even though they're managing to, to kind of function in their own eyes as they'd see it. Yeah, that was that was completely my experience because I, uh, I was saying earlier, like I hit my bottom like doing a graduate program at Yale, and I was like, well, I'm st I'm still making every single one of my classes. I'm I'm not failing, and it, it wasn't until getting sober that I was like, oh wow, it doesn't have to be so difficult. Like it doesn't. I don't have to be like literally dying <laughs> while I'm doing my coursework, and you know, it's some, something that gets said a lot. It's like. Uh, it's 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 progressive. Like uh, if you have a problem with drinking, it's progressive. Like just because you haven't hit a rock bottom that qualifies with what you consider an alcoholic doesn't mean that you won't get there. And then you know not everyone will have that experience, but for me that was definitely true. Like my what what I perceive as being someone I, I, that I would, I thought that like I wasn't an alcoholic because I wasn't destitute. I still had my house. I still had like my school. But you know that that was still there for me to lose. Like if I kept going as I was going. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, kind of from a psychology perspective, the mind is an amazing thing and we can uh, and, you know, we can always come up with amazing uh, kind of tricks on ourselves to believe the story that we want to tell. And what, what always fascinates me about when I was kind of drinking really heavily and I developed a lot of tolerance, so I could drink pretty much a bottle of rum or whatever it was and you know still not actually feel drunk because my tolerance had got so high but looking back on it you know I had no concept I never thought for a second what what's this doing to my health until it actually did it. Um, I'd love to hear you two perhaps talk around gender and drinking and how um, the fact that you know people drink for different reasons obviously but um, you know there, there's pointed marketing um for for women and men that are different based on social stereotypes and why people might want to drink but then that kind of pushes you further into drinking because you're identifying with these images that you see yeah i saw a comparison which was uh, they compared it to big tobacco that tobacco was originally this very masculine thing and then men started getting diagnosed with lung cancer. So they brought, uh, they network, they advertised, that's what I'm looking for. They advertised it to women. And then women lung cancer caught up. Um, the margin between male and female drinkers used to be very large. And especially in the younger generation, that margin is very, very, very slim now. Uh, which is, uh, I feel that like every, every avenue of, you know, all of these uh, ideas we have for like what a woman should be, the advertising uh, bolsters up, like there is a drinking 
a, a compliment to that. You know, there's the girls' night out, like free young women, like this, you know, the sexiest little cocktails, low calories, so, you know, you, you don't, like, gain any weight, you know, because that's all women care about, obviously. Um, and then there's the, it's like, this is really prevalent in America, like the mommy wine culture. Like, oh, like, here's mommy's juice, and it's like a bottle of wine. So, uh, it's kind of like every avenue you go down, uh, the alcohol industry has found a way to get their met that get the idea that drinking is sexy and necessary um, for women. And there's an amazing book uh, that I read as I was getting, uh, you know, in my early sobriety called Drink by uh, Anne Johnson. And it's about a woman's relationship with alcohol. And she has this amazing quote. Um, in the introduction where she talks about uh, women, women's rights advancing and then alcohol realising that like as they try and get uh, equality with men, they can uh, put their message on them. Uh, and she said that uh, is alcohol the steroid enabling women to do the heavy lifting in an endlessly complex world? Or is it an escape valve for women still in the midst of a major social revolution? And that was the first thing I read that I was just like, wow, like this... I'm being played here. Yeah. yeah, I think, and that shows how how clever and nuanced the kind of marketing is. That um, there was a conference recently about um, alcohol marketing and uh, by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. And actually, yeah, it's it really hard to actually think about. Well, how does alcohol marketing actually influence me or influence the way I think about alcohol? But it, it's very subtle, and it does really tie into all those kind of identities and. Um, you know, the kind of things that people associate with alcohol in terms of how they see it as kind of, you know, just kind of a part of who they are and their lifestyle and all the positive things associated with that. Um, but the really interesting thing is that, you know, there's the marketing regulation, um, you know, there's quite a lot of kind of uh, requirements for the, the kind of codes that the alcohol industry self-regulates itself on. And there's a lot of criticism about uh, the extent to which they self-regulate themselves across kind of all forms of advertising. Um, but, you know, they say they don't appeal to children um, and, you know, it can't promote success, sex, sexual success and all these kind of things. But these are such grey areas, you know, it's so hard to actually uh, define. I mean, a while ago I made a complaint um, because uh, one of the things they, sh they shouldn't do, according to the code, is promote excess or, or you know, uh, immoderate consumption or however they define it. And it was a radio advert that said... Uh, something like because um, a beer goes with everything uh, and I was you know, for me that was just my oh they're trying to say it goes well with your cornflakes yeah and, um, um, and when I complained and they you know the answer was basically no because people would see it within the context that it was meant so yeah marketing is really subtle it's really pervasive and it really kind of drives these kind of subconscious ideas that that kind of I think reinforce the idea of alcohol as all positive and all good and you know I'm not saying that alcohol doesn't have positives and it doesn't have good sides to it but I think the kind of marketing is part of uh the one of the forces that's got us in a cultural position where it's so normalized and so culturally endorsed that the the whole the whole kind of downside of alcohol is kind of 
kind of whitewashed to a degree mm. in the general mindset. I was thinking as you said that, like not marketed to children, and like I'm thinking of every alcohol advert I saw as a child, and every one I saw, I was like, that looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, as a child, you want you aspire yeah. to be more adult. Exactly. And what more adult thing to do is there than to drink. Like well. alcohol pops with the bright colours. It's it's very interesting as well, as you mentioned, um, self regulation. How does that work? How does um, the alcohol industry, how can they self-regulate? Like, how do we live in a world where well, we allow that? It's an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Turkey's, exactly. Turkey's voting for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, we've spoken a lot about the effects that alcohol has on society. Um, I just kind of wanted to hear your perspective on what place you think alcohol does have in society, because obviously it isn't something that we need to survive or to get by in life. But yet it does have such a, a, a position in our society. So moving forward, what do you think, how do you think we should still have that relationship? Or whether we should as well. Yeah, it's kind of a million dollar question, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm fascinated by people that, that can regulate their drinking. I, I, uh, one of my roommates, she, uh, she's the type of person that can leave half a glass of wine with her dinner and just be like, oh, I'm not going to finish that because I'm fine. And obviously I'm wired completely differently than she is. So I'm just like, how? Like, I don't understand it. So, uh, it, uh, you know, it takes, it, it takes some definite, like me putting myself in other people's shoes, uh, and, you know, obviously being from Scotland, massive whiskey culture, massive gin culture. Um, I know people that uh, are genuinely fascinated by the cultural and uh, culinary aspects of that and, and how important that is. And I, I, th I think for me, I just need to, you know, uh, that's why, why I keep the community that I have of, of people that, that can't drink normally, because I need to remember there are people in the world that can drink normally. Uh, I, I'm, I will never be like them, but they, but they do exist and they're, and they're well, out there. And, and Adrian Charles is a really interesting example of that because he did a documentary last year called Drinkers Like Me. And, you know, this, this was him, you know, kind of re realising, he was saying he was drinking like 80 units a week, which, which is a lot, you know, it's like eight bottles of wine or whatever. Um, and, you know, throughout the documentary, met, met different people with different experiences. And his kind of conclusion was, yeah, he's kind of cut down a lot and he's done some really good work since. But in, in that, I think uh, I'm right in saying that he said that alcohol is the only drug that you have to apologise for not taking. And that really <laughs> shows its kind of cultural, yeah. normified position. Mm. So, I mean, I kind of think all drugs, with all drugs from a kind of policy perspective, it's a balance of regulation. So... We kind of know from America that prohibition doesn't work. It's it's too restrictive and it drives an underground market. And I think alcohol, even though the kind of tide has turned a bit and we're kind of facing the right direction to some degree, um, is, is kind of the opposite example. And it's under-regulated, that it's freely promoted and advertised and self-regulated, etc. So there's kind of got to be some kind of better middle ground for, for alcohol, which isn't prohibition and it isn't this kind of totally culturally endorsed thing and I think we are working towards getting it a bit back in the middle but I think the probably a good measure of that is where people don't feel stigmatized or peer pressure to not drink or to drink only one you know 
when I'm at the golf club and I say I'm only having one or two, I still get a lot of uh, kind of stick for that. Um, uh, and golf, being a golfer, stigmatised as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Um, yeah, it's kind of like if you are, you know, regulating yourself uh, or saying like that you don't want to drink or just want to want to have a few. Like people put all there's all sorts of judgments learned onto that uh, related to you know how hard you are. Like you know, uh, I'm sure this is a worldwide thing, but like in Scotland, it's always like you always want to be the hardest. Like you want to be the hard person, uh, and and as a woman, you got to overcompensate as well. So like that that was a big thing for me. And like uh, I, I can imagine like uh, with men, like it's it's a commentary on like your masculinity and everything. So. Uh, it's it's I think that that's definitely something that has to change like and I, I don't know how but it's, yeah. uh, it's, so it's interesting. not going to happen overnight but yeah hopefully we can yeah I mean by these kind of conversations and um yeah just kind of talking in a more nuanced way and understanding different perspectives and yeah kind of I mean I think we do need stronger regulation we do need more leadership from government I mean interestingly in Scotland they they're kind of you know, being praised for their really strong approach to to alcohol regulation, they've introduced the kind of floor price, minimum price of fifty pence mm-hmm. a unit, and there's good evidence, or some emerging evidence already that's starting to help. But that's only ever going to be a small part of it that that kind yeah. of drives the change in culture. It's, it's, you know, I was, um, I, I can't remember where I saw the statistic. I think it was a BBC website, but like I think it's Scotland has like a fifty four percent. A uh, higher chance uh, of an alcohol-related death than anywhere else in the UK, which is, uh, which again goes back to like this is this is a public health crisis. Uh, it's not saying there's 54% more alcoholics in Scotland, there's 54% more addicts. It's like no, this is just alcohol as as it is. And uh, the first when I heard about the uh, the baseline pricing, uh, my my first instinct, you know, as, as someone who identifies as an alcoholic, I was like, oh well, that that's ridiculous because like. Uh, you know, it's like alcoholics will sacrifice anything before they sacrifice their drink. Like this is going to impact like low-income families, blah blah blah. And while that still may be true, alcohol doesn't just affect alcoholics and addicts. Like it's uh, binge drinkers and problem drinkers, and and all of that. And I can definitely see that on a societal level being being helpful. And uh, as you say, like the evidence is is emerging. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. What I would love to see more of on a societal level is just as simple as having more access and options when you want to go out and have a drink with your friend and not have to just order an orange juice every time um this is this is actually the kind of inspiration for this episode because um we went to a club night in uh the chateau in in clapham and it was actually one of the nights that tribe put on called reggaeton and that was actually the first time where it was like kind of a small sweaty club situation there wasn't like that many drinks on offer um, I mean, alcoholic drinks. Um, and yeah, on the bar, there was a very big, interesting list of non-alcoholic drinks. And there was many people around me who said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I don't drink, so I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that. And I just thought that was so refreshing. And then my second thought was like, why is that so refreshing? Why isn't this the norm everywhere? Because then I can go to, you know, go to a club night and my friend can have also enjoy like a refreshing, tasty drink from, you know, a culinary point of view. It's like people who want to like, I don't know, I don't want to kind of, you know, talk about, uh, you know, vegan alternatives. I pretend to be me, but it's like, just make interesting vegetarian food. Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, whatnot. So, um, that's definitely something, and I, and I and I I guess there is a rise in that, like alcohol uh, alternative drinks yeah, and 
mm-hmm. menus. Yeah, I mean, the market has been kind of exploding. And, and I think that is consumer-driven. I once heard someone say that, you know, Toyota didn't invent the Prius because they wanted to save the environment. They invented it because there was consumer demand mm-hmm. for it. And I think the same things happened with, with kind of non-alcoholic drinks. Um, I mean, uh, it was interesting. I was hearing someone the other day saying about how Heineken have invested huge amounts in marketing Heineken Zero, mm. their kind of alcohol-free one. Um, but, you know, kind of rather cynically, they were saying, well, people still just see the Heineken advertising. They don't really see the Zero. <laughs> um, and, and the other interesting thing I've heard is that uh, recently that kind of 9%, only 9% of people who regularly consume those alcohol-free drinks are actually teetotal. So they're obviously appealing as well to a lot of people who just want to cut down their drinking and it helps mm-hmm. them do that. And I'm one of those people, you know, I don't really drink in the week. Um, but uh, sometimes, you know, if I'm having a, a curry or something, I do fancy a beer with it and I'll have an alcohol-free beer and it kind of does the job. Yeah, like I, I think there's like there's kind of an inclusivity uh, thing there. I remember my first year of sobriety, I'm coming up two years in March and I would only drink still plain water because I felt like it was my penance for being <laughs> such a dirty like alcoholic like, kind of, like you know so I was like you're still water now and forever and uh, in my second year I was just like wait a second like I, even if it's like a, a sparkly water with a wee spot of blueberry like I deserve that too like I don't deserve to be like sitting there with like my dusty glass in the corner <laughs> yeah. and like, drinking their martinis <laughs> like and I sort of like feeling um and it's, it's oh my god even just hearing you say like the curry was the beer like that's a all over like experience and uh having having options there is is so good um talking about language just because we've spoken about the stigma related to alcohol addiction and uh obviously like labeling sometimes people with you know these identities you're an alcoholic or you're in recovery or etc etc can feel quite profound so it'd be quite interesting to hear from you both like how do you speak how have you spoken about your alcohol addiction um like what labels you like to use or or maybe which ones you like to steer away from yeah it's when people don't identify with alcoholic kind of uh, what do they identify with and what are the reasons behind them not identifying with that one of my favorite uh, kind of academic papers is is something called um there's a paper called Reconstructing the Alcoholic Identity. Um, and it's really about kind of how people who have identified with being an alcoholic uh, kind of generate this this new self-identity. And that's, you know, like, because drinking tends to be such a big part of our identities, um, I, you know, it really was for me when I was young binge drinker. That was really how I saw myself and why I probably was so blind to all the stupid things and the harms that it was doing and going through that that those kind of processes have also involved identity transition transitions changing the way I see myself and how I think others see me um, but in that paper what I found so fascinating was the way that people talked about how they knew that ad- admitting I think is in the in the words of AA to being an alcoholic they knew that it was such a stigmatizing thing but they they kind of uh, responded to that by embracing it by saying well, despite the stigma, and I know everyone's going to kind of have this judgment and labelling approach to me and maybe discriminate against me, I'm still going to kind of proudly adopt it because that's kind of strength and commitment to my recovery. Um, So I think, yeah, I think the stigma is such an important conversation and thinking about how we can break down the stigma because, you know, 
it's so amazing when people do just come out and say that but we have to also recognize that that does put a lot of that is so scary to a lot of people and i felt really difficult when i did used to say it when i went to AA for a bit um yeah so i think there's pros and cons to it and i think we have to have a really open honest conversation about it and love to hear lauren's kind of views on that yeah completely so uh i the the high bar in my head for what an alcoholic was when I was younger and when I started drinking like I had like th there was only one person in my community that people were like oh he's the alky um and it was you know the I think the image that we all immediately get there's someone that's disheveled all the things we talked about earlier like what you lose um admitting that I was an alcoholic meant that there was a way that I could get help like I didn't have to live in this nebulous world of but can I drink normally again? But can I do this? Like, would this work for me? And can I keep hiding it from everyone? So, um, you know, I, I, of, I often will uh, identify as an addict as well, because then that's a way to like look at behaviours and addictive behaviours and like really work on it. So saying that I'm an alcoholic or an addict is not me looking back at my past. It's me saying like, here's how I'm going to go forward so that this disease does not take me down again and so a question I usually get on my Instagram is uh why why is your life just all sobriety like is that all you do is, is all you do like talk about sobriety and blah blah blah, blah. um and obviously that's all what I talk about on my account but like that couldn't be further from the truth like I I have an enormous life now with so much so many things in it and so so much going on and that would not be possible without my sobriety because uh, uh, when I was drinking my life was very small and it, it took for me to say I am an alcoholic I can't drink like other people for me to to actually fix it I think the problem is um that, you know, it's, it's totally part of human nature to try and categorise uh, things and to simplify things, um, you know, that, uh, you know, our lives would be far too complicated if we looked at everything in its entirety and uh, did, weren't able to kind of put labels and distill things down. But some things are just too complex for kind of single labels. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I really don't mean this as criticism of... Of, of AA in the sense that it's helped so many, many people, saved so many lives. But I do fundamentally believe that alcoholism, uh, you know, is kind of more of a met more of metaphorical thing and that's kind of how it was intended, um, you know, a kind of spiritual thing rather than a kind of literal physical entity in a sense. Um, and of course that helps so many people. But the problem of alcohol or addiction or mental health problems, these things are so nuanced and complicated that it's almost always going to be, in my view, counterproductive to try and distill them down too much. Mm. And that's why the conversations and, and everything um, is, are so important uh, because we always have to be a bit aware that trying to oversimplify these things uh, can be problematic. Um, there's a brilliant quote by H.L. Mencken that says, for every complex uh, problem, there's a solution that is complete, uh, simple, clear and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of, kind of, kind of my view that, 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 yeah, that there's degrees of severity and different experiences, um, uh, and every single person is so different and their experience is so different. Uh, many people believe that like once you stop drinking, your life will become easy, myself included. It's the drinking that's the problem. But, uh, you know, what you, what you mentioned about like mental health and 
uh, everything that even in just the past 20 years, we've got so much more information on and like public information um, about the the effects that trauma has and the effects that um, society is having on people. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be talking about that so freely and openly about 30 years ago. So I think that is changing the conversation so much about how we treat alcohol and why we drink. Um, and it's it's been such a long journey for me to realize uh, like, oh, these things weren't results of my hangovers. This was results as, you know, the depression I've experienced since I was 13. Um, and that's, you know, it, it, you know, as, as I said, like it took me for like, you know, to, to admit them an alcoholic and blah, 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 to get there. But other people who do not identify under that label uh, will also experience that as they get sober. I think that um, I've had so many mixed feelings about the, the sober curious movement. Yeah. Um, I, I, for, you know, my, my ego was like, oh, I almost died over this. Like, how dare you make it cute and funny and accessible to people? My um, recovered self was like, oh, you know, everyone deserves to be uh, happy, joyous and free in their own way. And if that is experimenting with sobriety, then that is, that is kind of beautiful for them. That's kind, that's kind of a gorgeous thing that no one should begrudge them experiencing. I think it really nicely fits back to what you were saying, James, about the need to almost package things. Because yet again, like I almost had similar feelings when I found out about sober curiousness. You know, it's almost like this word you create. So you, there's like a trend or something you can research. But um, because sober, being sober curious is just choosing not to have an alcoholic drink. You know what I mean? That's always existed, but there's this rise and there's a name need to like label it as a movement or Branded, something that yeah. we started, um, which is super interesting. But also at the same time, I can totally relate to what you're saying, Lauren, in that for someone who is working really hard to be sober, um, it kind of is maybe it's belittling to what you're doing. Right. Yeah. I think that <laughs> what, how, how I came around to it, it was like someone else's journey and someone doesn't reflect on mine. And if anyone is trying to make that healthier for them, however they choose, I think that is an amazing way to go forward. Thank you to Lauren and James for being our amazing guests and giving their perspectives and sharing their story with us. To keep up to date with Lauren and James, remember to follow Brutal Recovery on Instagram. And for Lauren's amazing singing work and writing, her website is laurenmcquiston.com. For James's writing and work within alcohol addiction, his website is jamesmorris24.com. And for people who want to go out and find out more information about alcohol, maybe um, maybe you're struggling with drinking or you just want to know a bit more about the science or the social um, impact, etc. Um, there's a really fantastic place you can go, which is called Alcohol Change, um, previously known as Alcohol Research UK. The, the web address is alcoholchange.org.uk. Um, there's loads of fact sheets, information about, you know, uh, alcohol and sports, etc. Um, so, yeah, it's a good place to go and have a look if you want to find out more. Um, and there is Drinkline, um, number for which is 0300 123 and actually also um James who you who you heard from this episode um he's available for one to one support so you can um find a way to contact him via his website 
Just to mention as well, the sort of sober curious movement has definitely been pushed by Instagram and sort of people using their own platforms to sort of challenge the dominant drinking culture. This has come from people who have um, had to reassess drinking problems within themselves as well. Um, people like Africa Brooks, um, Millie Grouch, Ruby Warrington, of course, who set up the Sober Curious podcast, Sad Girls Club, DJ Paulette. Um, there are loads of people who have been behind this movement which has called for like safer social spaces which don't centralise drinking to them. And actually through doing some research into this I also found out about a place called Sober is Fun which is um, actually a comedy club which was set up by a man called Martin. He was an alco recovering alcoholic and he's a comedian who'd worked in entertainment for many many years but actually had to separate himself from his work because he realized it wasn't very beneficial to to his recovery really mm. um so i think like a year or two after he had actually become sober he set up sober as fun just because he wanted a space to be able to to, to work and also no he wanted a space to be able yeah. to to do perform, comedy yeah. and perform and etc um that wouldn't be detrimental to it and he and it, he obviously had like as a comedian himself he had all these great contacts at the apollo etc etc so wrote to loads of his friends into doing like the first one um as a way of almost giving back to his community of you know also recovering that alcoholics cool. That's so cool. um and people who he met at aa and yeah i think what he told me was quite surprising was that from the first one, he noticed that the audience, he sold out, number one, Sick. but she said he didn't expect to do, but the audience was also quite mixed. And so mm. it wasn't uh, just people from, you know, his own, the sort of like recovery community. It was also just people who just yeah. wanted to go out and also, not have a drink. Yeah, exactly. I bet also that it wasn't all just people who are like, who are like sober or like teetotal people. It's probably like, People probably went because they were like, oh, I want to go see some comedy and I don't really feel like drinking. Yeah. Um, and so that's quite interesting because I think that is, to me, the key of all of this. That it's, why why are we talking about, like, not drinking being such a categorical, like, big deal? Yeah. Like, it shouldn't yeah. be a big deal. Yeah. Why is that the default? Yeah. 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 And I think also there is something about, like, that high that you, not that high, but the sort of energy that sometimes alcohol can get can give you mm. and he was talking about like laughter being such a strong replacement for that oh, um and so beautiful. actually like a lot you coming into a space like that you realize how like you don't need mm. the, i don't know yeah that's that was quite an interesting comment that he made cool yeah thank you for tuning in to this episode of third waves Remember to stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's third with three eyes. I am Rona. I'm Daniela. And I'm Tribe.